Hello, and welcome to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Nicole Turner, college professor, PhD student, and true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or is associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from one to five on my very own serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to five being very serious. You guys, I promise I will have an episode that's not rated a five eventually, soon, (laughs) but this episode is definitely rated a five because it's a story that can never be forgotten because of its magnitude and earth-shattering, life-changing effects it had on at least 49 innocent victims and their loved ones. This is the tragic story of the shootings that occurred on the campus of Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University in Blacksburg, Virginia, more commonly known as the Virginia Tech Massacre, because that is exactly what it was. It's one of the most fatal and deadliest shootings to ever occur in U.S. history. It's actually more than just one story, though. It's several stories because it takes several accounts to form the full picture of exactly what happened. And I'm going to do my best to take you through several victims' perspectives of that day. So I will say that it's particularly important in this episode to pay close attention just basically to follow along and be able to follow the full story. But I do want to warn you that there is some tough information and details included in this episode that will be hard to hear. I know it tugged at my heartstrings a little harder as I was writing it this week, and I wanted to give you all a fair heads up. I don't have a snazzy title this week because I think the event alone speaks for itself. So without further ado, let's get started. On the morning of Monday, April 16th, 2007, Colin Goddard and his friend Christina Heger were running a tad bit late to their 9 a.m. French class. It was a snowy day, nothing at all like spring is supposed to be, so I can only imagine how good skipping class sounded that day as Colin swung by Christina's house and picked her up. Once they arrived on campus, the two friends stalled in the parking lot and debated going to eat breakfast instead of going to class. I mean, French toast sounded much better than French class did on this snowy morning. But they ultimately decided to go ahead and go to class because, after all, attendance was worth a large portion of their grade and they wanted to be good students. So they got out of Colin's car and reluctantly headed into Nora's Hall and up the stairs to their class that awaited for them. That classroom was room 211 the room where the shooter would ultimately take his own life. But there was no way Christina or Colin or any of their peers could know this as they entered the room and scurried to the back of the corner of the class to take their seats. 
According to ABC News, they arrived to class about five minutes late, around 9.05 a.m. However, they weren't the only students who arrived late to class that morning. According to ABC News, another student, Rachel Hill, arrived around 9.30 and said she was late because there had been a shooting in her dorm. She lived in West Ambler Johnston Hall, a co-ed dorm, but at that very moment, nobody knew just how deadly that shooting was. I mean, despite the shooting, authorities let people come and go out of the building. Remembering Rachel tell them this, Colin told ABC News, quote, All of us were kind of shocked, so we assumed that they, the officials, let Rachel go, that things were okay, and we continued with class, end quote. According to N.R. Kleinfeld's article in the New York Times, police initially began pursuing the first shooting as an isolated domestic violence incident, and they didn't believe anyone else was in danger at the time. So that's ultimately the reason why they were still letting students come and go out of that dorm. Meanwhile, students on either side of room 211, just down the hall, were making their way to their own classes. Derek Odell was one of these students. On that morning, Derek sat in a classroom on the second floor of Norris Hall waiting for his German class to get started. He remembers thinking how unusually cold it was that morning, focusing specifically on the blanket of snow that covered the ground. He said his birthday was just three days before on April 13th, and he never remembered seeing snow after his birthday until this very day in 2007. So basically, that day stood out to him. That morning before his class at 9 a.m., Derek said he stopped at Burger King around 8.40 for some breakfast. And later, as he sat in his class, he remembered the professor was in the middle of teaching the students how to quote someone in the media, in German, I'm assuming, when they noticed a guy poke his head in their classroom a couple of times and look around. The students didn't think much of it at first. They basically just assumed it was a student who had gotten turned around and was lost and just looking for his classroom, which it actually is a totally normal thing and a common thing that happens on college campuses because sometimes classes randomly get moved or college students just don't know where they were moved to. But they thought it was a little strange that this guy poked his head in and did this not once, but two different times between 9.15 and 9.20 a.m. They later realized he was scoping out the rooms and planning his attack because that student, that person who nobody knew who was peeping in their classroom, was 23-year-old senior English major Siang Wee Cho, the terrible, awful person who took the lives of so many people that day. Y'all, when I heard that, a pit in my stomach dropped. I mean, can you imagine sitting there in class thinking it's a totally normal day? Then you see a student poke his head in a couple of times, and the last thing you think is, oh, this guy must be scoping out our classroom to attack us and shoot us in the next 20 minutes or so. No, you don't think that. You think it must be a lost student looking for the classroom that he's supposed to be in for his own 9 a.m. class, or maybe even looking for another person or something like that. But you don't think that he's there to scope out your room and attack you with a gun. I just can't fathom how blindsided and shocked and traumatized all of these victims must have been. So my heart just really pours out to them. But continuing with our story, 
what nobody in the entire building knew was that Cho had gotten his day started early. He had already been to West Ambler Johnston Hall, a four-story co-ed dorm, and he was the one responsible for the earlier shootings. It was no domestic violence incident. At around 7.15 a.m., Cho killed two people in that dorm. 19-year-old freshman Emily Jane Hilsher and 22-year-old senior and resident assistant Ryan Clark. Then, as all the students in Norris Hall were dragging themselves to class this snowy morning, Cho was busy on the first floor of the building, chaining and locking three different entrances to the building so nobody else, besides the people who were already in Norris Hall, could come or go through those entrances as he was embarking on his shooting spree. At around 9.41 a.m., the shootings started. Derek said it began across the hall from him in a hydrology class. When they first heard it, they thought it sounded like a nail gun or a loud hammer hitting concrete blocks. In an excerpt from Matt Rogers' book titled, When Answers Aren't Enough, Experiencing God is Good When Life Isn't, Derek said, quote, We all looked up and the professor stopped teaching for a moment, but we just thought it was construction going on next door. They had been working on the building next to Norris all semester. We dismissed it as that, end quote. After making his way through the hydrology class, the shooter then came for Derek's classroom. The door swung open and Derek remembers the shooter raised a 9mm Glock handgun and fired three rounds into his professor. He then swung around and fired another 8-10 to shots at several students in the class. After the gun was empty, the shooter reloaded and began walking around the class shooting students one by one. Derek said, quote, I saw bullets ricocheting off desks and off the wall as he slowly went around the room killing people. He walked down the aisles, putting the gun to people's heads and shooting them at point-blank range to make sure they were dead, end quote. Derek went on to say that the whole situation happened so incredibly fast and sudden that nobody in that classroom knew what to think or how to react. He said several students just froze in shock of what was happening. He himself had a million thoughts running through his head, with one of them dismissing the whole thing as a possible joke for a few seconds. Until he saw the casings, he said. Then he knew it was real. He also knew it was real when he realized that he, too, had been shot. Ultimately, Derek was shot once in his right arm. After the shooter completely emptied the gun for a second time and nearly everyone in the German class lay motionless or silent, Cho exited the classroom and went on down the hall to the next one filled with students. Derek said, quote, I guess Cho figured everyone was either dead or mortally wounded because he left the room at that point and went down the hall to the freshman class and started shooting there, end quote. And that's when Cho entered room 211, the French class that Colin and Christina had arrived to late and almost skipped entirely. Prior to Cho getting to their classroom, though, they too had heard the loud banging sounds coming from down the hall when Cho first started shooting. They didn't have much time to react, but they did have a little more time than those students did in the first and second classrooms he went to. At that point, the French professor had peeked her head outside the classroom to see what was going on. As soon as she realized what was happening, she slammed the door shut and told the students to get under their desks and call 911. Colin did just that, 
And as he was on the phone, Cho was on the other side of the door making his way in. Before they knew it, bullets were flying across the room in all directions. Both Colin and Christina were shot multiple times. Back in Derek's classroom, the German class, even though many students were shot, they still managed to react and think fast about the situation. Derek said there were only about five students in his whole class of about 15 who were conscious enough to react, and only four of those five could even stand up. He said God must have been with him and reacted for him as he described what he did next, saying, quote, Cho had left the door open and I sprinted over the tops of the desks to the front of the room and shut the door. I had to go over the desks because there was so much debris in the aisles, book bags, people. I shut the door and a friend who had been shot in the hand helped me hold it closed. We heard more shots down the hall, maybe 15 or 20. Then he came back to our room and tried to get in. He got the door open three or four inches, but we shut it again. Cho stepped back and started firing at it. The doors in Norris are solid wood, about two inches thick, but the bullets started coming through. Four or five bullets, maybe. End quote. After unsuccessfully getting in the second time, Cho left, but came back for a third time. Derek described it, saying, quote, As he was firing at the door, I just started praying to God that we might be saved. Cho left again, and we heard more shots down the hall. Then he came back and tried to get in a third time fired two more shots into the door. It was around this time that I heard the shotgun blasts from police officers trying to get in the building on the floor below. Cho had chained the doors. Then I just remembered that the shot stopped. End quote. That is when Cho went back to the French class for another time. While this was happening, Colin remained on the phone with the 911 dispatcher, even during the midst of being shot four different times. Once above his knee once in both of his hips, and finally in his right shoulder. His friend, Christina, was shot three times. In her back first, which she described to Jessica Volker for Seattle Met Magazine as a burning numbness. Then she was shot again in her back and once in her toe. She isn't sure how, but at some point she managed to push herself off the desk and slumped onto the floor. She said somehow she and Colin's hands were able to find each other's and they laid there holding hands, wounded with multiple gunshots, just waiting for it all to be over. She recalled that she pretended to be dead, which she said served her well. Colin told ABC News, quote, After that last shot to the right shoulder, you could hear the police on the scene. I threw the phone, trying to act natural with the bullet, the phone stayed open and landed next to Emily's head, and she remained on the line with the dispatcher, end quote. Emily, who he's talking about, Emily Haas, is another survivor of this terrible tragedy. According to ABC News, she was huddled under her desk and two shots grazed her head, but she was still able to stay on the line with the 911 operator. One of the last classrooms Cho targeted was a solid mechanics class, and because it was one of the last classes he went to, they had more time to react than any of the others did. Alec Calhoun was in that class, and in an article by Jonathan Smith for Vice.com, Alec described that he and his classmates heard the same loud banging noise, like a loud hammer, that the others heard as well. They heard bang, 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 two seconds apart, and then they heard someone scream. 
That was the giveaway that told them something was very wrong. One of Alec's friends, Jamal, was actually the first one to realize the sound they heard was gunfire. As soon as he realized this, Jamal panicked and he and another student took off running out the door and down the stairs. At this point, the professor peeked his head out the door, saw the chaos, and then slammed the door closed, yelling for someone to call 911. They had no idea that Colin, in the French class down the hall, had already called and Alec was ready to dial. Meanwhile, the other students in the classroom shut the door and lines began forming at the windows on the left side of the room opposite the door. Y'all, these students were jumping from the second story windows over 19 feet up to safety from the shooter. Alec remembers getting to the window and thinking, heck no, this is not for me because, well, he's scared of heights. But adrenaline kicked in, and before he knew it, he lowered himself onto the windowsill and hurled himself down the long drop to the ground. He said as soon as he landed, he rolled onto his back in pain because the jump had knocked the wind out of him. Later, he would discover he sprained his ribs, too, which was relatively mild compared to two other students who each suffered a broken leg from the jump. Eventually, Cho made his way into that mechanics class and he shot and killed Alec's professor and one other student who didn't make it to safety. Three others in that particular class were also shot, but thankfully they survived. Alec said that after he jumped, he could still hear the gunman firing bullets into the classroom just above him. Jamal, Alec's friend who ran down the stairs, was shot in the hallway, but he was still able to make it down the stairs and he did survive as well. In a span of nine and a half minutes, I can only imagine that it was the longest nine and a half minutes of all of their lives, the shooter zigzagged through four different classrooms, shooting anyone and everyone in his way. But he tried to get into even more classrooms than just those four. Some, however, succeeded in not letting him in because they had barricaded the door and were able to hold it closed. According to an NPR article by Sarah McCammon, Lisa Hamp was in the middle of a computer science class when they heard the shooter. Not knowing that's actually what the sounds were at the time, one of Lisa's classmates and a teaching assistant both stepped outside the classroom to see what was going on. As soon as they did, they were fired upon, but thankfully missed. They hurried back inside and were able to barricade the door just in time. Lisa described the situation, saying, quote, It was literally like table up, desk up, shooter at the door. It was a matter of seconds, end quote. However, this didn't stop Cho from trying to force his way in. He would push at the door as Lisa and her classmates were hunkering on the floor, avoiding bullets, all while holding the door shut. Lisa said, quote, He would kick at it and the door would like swing open a foot and we would push back, end quote. The shooting finally did stop after Cho returned to room 211, the French class, for the third and final time and took his own life just as emergency responders and police were blasting through the chained entrances and rushing inside. Derek said, quote, Police were on our hall nine minutes after the shooting started. I don't know when Cho killed himself, but it was sometime before the officers got to our floor. Cho killed a total of 27 students and five teachers that day and injured another 17 more people. But I'm sure you all are wondering, why? 
what could possibly motivate someone, a 23-year-old college student, to kill and hurt that many people? Well, to be honest, there's no good answer, and there never is, is there? But here is the explanation. According to reports, Cho had a not-so-clean history regarding odd behavior. But that's the thing. People chalked it up as odd and kind of kept going. At least from my perspective, that seems to be the case. According to a New York Times article by N.R. Kleinfeld, Cho was always quiet growing up and his own mother would get incredibly frustrated because he would rarely speak to the point that she apparently would pray to God to change her son. His family basically thought he might be mute or possibly even mentally ill. Cho was born in South Korea, but his family later moved to the U.S. when he was eight years old, specifically to Centerville, Virginia, which, according to the New York Times article, has a large Korean community. Eventually, Cho began speaking, but barely. His uncle said the only words he really ever heard Cho say were, yes, sir. He grew up to be a scrawny kid who looked younger than his actual age. He was quiet. He wore glasses. He would keep to himself and occupy his time by playing basketball and video games alone. So basically, this guy sounds like a loner. When his parents dropped him off at college at Virginia Tech, they hoped at the very least he would maybe break out of a shell, open up a little bit, maybe explore his own personality, which I think he did, but not in the way people were expecting. Over the course of the next four years, people began recognizing that he basically lived in an imaginary universe. I mean, the kid was an English major, so he liked to write, but his writings were creepy and dark and disturbing, to say the least, which included poetry and short stories and plays. In a one-act play he wrote titled Richard McBeef, yes, you heard that correctly, Richard McBeef, a 13-year-old character threatened to kill his stepfather. So that kind of dark and creepy content, which not only concerned his teachers, but also fellow students who read his writings. One student said, quote, this is the kind of guy who is going to walk into a classroom and start shooting people, end quote. Here's an English term, foreshadowing. Talk about ironic, huh? One of his English professors also worried about him and even offered to tutor him. But his writings disturbed and concerned her so much that she reported him to counseling services. And listen to this. She would even arrange a code word with her teaching assistant when Cho would come for tutoring. Basically, if she uttered a certain word, it was supposed to be a cue for her teaching assistant to call campus security. Um, if you are that scared of a person and that worried, Shouldn't you be doing a little more than simply referring him to counseling? As a professor, I'm not trying to critique her or say what she did was not the right thing because I'm sure in her gut, like she was thinking that what she was doing at the time was the only way she really knew how to handle it and, and was the right thing at the time. But here's the thing. As a professor, I can personally say that if I was that afraid of a student, I'd definitely be raising a little more hell and trying to get that kid all the help he could possibly get in whatever way that is, whatever way that was needed. But 
That professor referring him to the counseling center was not the only time he was recommended to seek counseling. Let's go back to his alternate or imaginary universe or whatever you want to call it. Apparently, he would randomly introduce himself as question mark, like his name, he said, was question mark. And he even wrote a question mark, like a literal question mark symbol, as his name on a class attendance sign-in sheet. He was also so quiet in class that his peers thought he was a deaf mute, and they one time offered him $10 to speak, to say hello, anything, but nothing. He just sat there, staring straight ahead with sunglasses on his face and a ball cap pulled down tightly over his head. At one point during his junior year, Cho told his roommates that he had an imaginary girlfriend named Jelly, who called him Spanky, and she lived in outer space and traveled to see him in her spaceship. But he also became fixated on real girls on campus. Two of them filed a complaint to campus police saying he was calling them a lot and he would show up at their rooms randomly and send them tons of instant messages. After the second complaint against him, police approached Cho and told him to stop. Cho, though, got super upset and told his roommates that he might as well kill himself. Cho was then sent off campus to a mental health facility for treatment. While there, a counselor recommended involuntary treatment and a judge deemed Cho a danger. So he was sent to another facility for evaluation where a doctor declared him mentally ill. However, the doctor said he wasn't an imminent threat, so the judge ordered him to receive outpatient treatment instead of inpatient treatment, but nobody really knew if he actually received it. Here's the thing. Police say Cho was planning his attack for a long time, as in months, almost as if he was writing an imaginary story, but actually playing it out in real life, in real time. He bought the first gun on February 9th, two months before the shooting happened. He bought a 22 caliber pistol, which he ordered from an internet site and picked up from a pawn shop near campus. That's how easy it was for him to get a gun. He then bought the second gun, the 9mm Glock, on March 13th at Roanoke Firearms. The only thing he had to have to purchase it? His Virginia driver's license, his green card, and a form of payment. He paid $571 via credit card, according to the New York Times article. He also bought 50 rounds of ammunition that day. Then, on March 22nd, Cho went to a gun range to practice his shooting. Over the next few weeks, between March 22nd and April 16th, the day the massacre occurred, Cho completed a long shopping list to prepare for the shooting. Some of the items on that list included cargo pants, sunglasses, 22 caliber ammunition, a hunting knife, and gloves. He also spent a few nights in a couple different hotels recording weird, disturbing videos that he would later send to the media. But I'll come back to that. According to the New York Times, Cho spent several thousands of dollars preparing for the shooting, most of it purchased with a credit card. But it doesn't stop there. He also began getting physically ready for his attack, including cropping his hair to a military type of buzz cut and working out in the gym with a, quote, certain frenzy, end quote. 
So am I the only one picturing this like scrawny kid working out Richard Simmons style? Anyway, the morning of the shooting, Cho woke up super early before 5 a.m. and started getting ready. He brushed his teeth, put moisturizer on his face, and slipped in some contact lenses. All while listening to the song Shine by Collective Soul on repeat. Then, shortly after 7 a.m., Cho shot those two students in the co-ed dorm he lived in. The police still have no idea why he shot those two particular students, why he targeted them, or even why he stopped there and only shot those two when compared to what he did in Norris Hall later. Regardless, they had no idea it was Cho. They didn't suspect him at all. Instead, they thought it was the female student's boyfriend who they discovered was into guns and apparently had quite a bit of knowledge about firearms. So they basically went on a wild goose chase while Cho had tons of time to plan his next moves. And that he did. According to CNN, at around 9 a.m. that morning, Cho went to a post office near campus and mailed a package containing video, photographs, and writings to NBC News in New York City. However, NBC didn't receive that until two days later due to an incorrect address on the package. He then returned to campus, specifically to Norris Hall, and began his attack. But here's the thing, y'all. It was later discovered that Cho wasn't even supposed to have a gun. According to a New York Times article by Michael Luo, people who have been, quote, adjudicated as mental defective, end quote, and who have been involuntarily placed in a mental health facility cannot legally purchase or own a gun. I'll let that sink in for a minute. It's been over 14 years since the deadly shooting happened at Virginia Tech. Back in 2017, on the 10th anniversary of the massacre, ABC News did a special that featured what that particular wing of Norris Hall is now. At one time, being the classrooms where so many innocent lives were taken tragically, that part of the building was completely gutted to the stud and renovated. It is now Virginia Tech's Center for Peace Studies and Violence Prevention. According to the Virginia Tech website, the center is, quote, an academic and research organization whose vision builds on the cultural initiatives that evolved within the Virginia Tech community after the tragedy of April 16, 2007. The center's educational mission envisions a world informed by cross-disciplinary work in violence prevention research, education, and hands-on learning experience, end quote. The students who survived the shooting are now in their 30s. The ones specifically mentioned in this episode have dedicated their lives to not only sharing their stories and what they lived through, but sharing them in hopes that they could help others in some way. You see, many of them, despite the hateful and nonsensical act of what they went through, many of them have overwhelmingly optimistic and positive outlooks. Colin Goddard, for example, participated in a roundtable discussion for People magazine where he and five other people shared their own personal stories of surviving gun violence. And even though he still has bullets lodged in his body from being shot those four times, he said he considers himself one of the lucky ones simply because he's living to tell his story. He said very humbly, quote, I was able to survive and get pulled out of that room, and most people didn't. 
Also, I consider myself incredibly fortunate to have sustained injuries that allowed me to work hard in physical therapy to return to do much of what I did before. It's incredibly lucky because that's not what most experience is like, end quote. Colin is now an advocate for gun control and wants to bring awareness to gun violence, as in stop selling guns to people who shouldn't have guns. As an advocate now and as someone with a purpose, he said, quote, I think that was kind of the last phase of my healing process, trying to take the worst day of my life and put it towards something positive, end quote. Similarly, Derek Odell, the student from the German class who was shot once in the arm, said talking about that day can be cathartic in a way, like part of his healing, especially because of his faith in God. Derek firmly believes God was watching over him and many others that day, regardless of the hate that ensued and the tragic deaths that resulted. Remember how he only got shot once in his arm? Well, he actually had three different bullet holes in his thin black fleece jacket he was wearing that day. There was the initial one, the one that entered and exited his bicep, but there was also another bullet hole on the right shoulder of the jacket. Derek said, quote, I guess the jacket was raised slightly because the bullet didn't hit me, end quote. He didn't realize that there was a third bullet hole in his jacket until after he got home from the hospital that day. It was in the front of his jacket near the zipper, right in front of his heart. Derek said realizing this only strengthened his faith in God. He said, quote, The bullet hole over my heart had to have come when I was holding the door with my foot. When Cho was trying to get back in our room, it's the only time I had my jacket unzipped so that a bullet could have come through at that angle without hitting me. And that's the moment I was praying for God's help, end quote. Christina Heger, who is now Christina Anderson, has started the Koshka Foundation, which is devoted to school safety. And through that foundation, she travels around the country as a public speaker, sharing with others her story as a mass shooting survivor educating people, and teaching them how to possibly prevent similar situations from happening. In April 2018, Christina spoke to an audience at the University of Oregon and told them, quote, I want our event to be remembered not just as one of the worst mass shootings ever. I want it to be remembered as a place for hope and learning and inspiration as well, end quote. In educating people about gun violence, Christina urges people to understand that it is not always something that can be controlled. She explained that Cho, quote, did have control over who survived and who didn't. By confronting terrorism or active shooters, you're also confronting that you can't control everything in life, end quote. Christina shares her story with others because she said, quote, once you experience something really painful, it's an innate human need to want to share that with others so they don't have to go through it. However, she still leans on the support of others who have experienced similar trauma as her saying, quote, we call ourselves the club we don't want to belong to. Frank DeAngelis, the former principal of Columbine High School, coined it, end quote. Alec Calhoun, the one who jumped out of the window to escape the gunman, said he has struggled with survivor's guilt at times. He said his friend, Justin, who remained in the classroom instead of jumping from the window, was shot but thankfully survived. However, during a counseling session on campus for the surviving victims, Justin confided in the group and 
Alec recalled feeling so somber and so guilty after hearing Justin's experience. Alec recalled, quote, To hear the story from his perspective was very difficult. I was the last person to jump from the windows. I felt guilty for leaving, like it should have been me and not him. But of course, in reality, we were all helpless. There's nothing you can do, but I think it's a natural thing to wonder what you could have done differently, end quote. To conclude this episode, I want to direct you guys to a list of all 32 names of the people who were shot and killed on that snowy day in April 2007. I have put up a full list on my Instagram account at Campus Crime Podcast and my Facebook page at Campus Crime Chronicles. I wanted to list them by name, like actually speak them one by one by name to conclude this episode, but... I'm sure most of y'all are sick of my voice by now. Okay, guys, that brings us to the end of Chronicle 5. But back to that huge favor I was asking y'all last time. If you are liking what you're hearing and if you're really loving these Chronicles, it would help me out a ton if you'd leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. So just click those stars and tell me how much you love Campus Crime Chronicles. Okay, that's officially all for today. Bye, y'all. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by Big Mad Media. Tune in again in two weeks for the next Chronicle.